Welcome back to Beyond Bones, a series of kitchen table conversations between a doctor and her yoga teacher. Hi everyone, it's Eliza uh, greeting you from Zurich, Switzerland at the moment, and I'm here with Chloe, who's greeting us from London. Hi Chloe. Hi Eliza. Today what we're going to do is think a little bit about the topic of anxiety and the body and particularly in this context of lockdown, which most of us find ourselves in at the moment. Eliza, did you want to talk a bit about why you think this is an important topic for now? Absolutely. So I'll just start with my own experience, which was in the very beginning of the outbreak, we could say. And as the changes began to pop up with you know, we were told to stay home from work. We were told not to go on public transportation. We were told to stay three meters or six feet away from all other humans. And at least in Zurich, one needs to wear, you know, a mask when going into a grocery store. So when all this arose, I felt really prepared. I felt like I have made meditation retreats. I've been practicing yoga for 16 years. I love solitude. I love silence. What a wonderful time, I rejoice. <laughs> um, but then when I looked deeper into myself, mainly when I would first go on my yoga mat in the morning or in the evening, I noticed how much tightness gathered at the top of my chest and at my throat region. And I noticed that the breath became very restricted in certain postures where normally I don't recall experiencing breath restriction. So those examples are just to say, I realize that deep inside of my body and also even on a surface level with my skin, I was holding tension I was experiencing anxiety in my physical body, though I was not yet aware of it mentally. So the, I took one week at the beginning of this and I didn't do any teaching. I really didn't do much work. I didn't speak much. I went primarily into silence. And for seven days, I just worked on opening up this particular locked region, getting breath to flow you know, more freely in my body. And after seven days, I can say that much of the anxiety and tension was released from my body. So I, my wish for everyone who's listening to this, for anyone who's practicing, is that you take some time to really be with your own body and your own mind and your own breath to examine if you're carrying around tension, if you're carrying around anxiety, and then to apply some of the practices that we've done together or that we'll touch on today in order to transcend, release, let go, move through some of this tension that you might be holding in the body. I think this is really important and we can support each other in this way. Thanks, Eliza. I suppose uh, my experience has been I'm working at the moment as a psychiatrist in London and so fortunately I, I mean I feel very grateful that my work has not stopped and I'm still able to um, to, to see patients and to uh, go to the hospital run my clinics um, although via video which is a, a new experience but I feel very grateful to be able to work but again what I noticed in this um, lockdown is the amount of, I would say, latent anxiety, this anxiety that seems to exist in the zeitgeist, in the collective unconscious, in the media, in, on social media, that everyone seems to be tuning into. And I mean, in some ways, you, you can't really avoid it. Um, and it became of interest to me. I started to study a little bit about the effects of pandemics on on the consciousness of, of people living through them. Um, and thinking also um, from, you know, in my, in, my, in my job as a psychiatrist about how that affects people individually. Um, and, you know, why people might be feeling particularly anxious at this time and what can be done about it, if anything, what should be done about it. 
Um, I think I became interested because a lot of the normal ways that we have of managing anxiety. So obviously anxiety is a normal, is a normal thing that we all as healthy human beings experience fear and anxiety. It's a normal emotion. Um, but what we would consider to be healthy, I suppose, is that it comes and then we find a way to allow it to flow, to release. Um, and this doesn't lead to any long-term problems. But when the anxiety starts to become stored in the body um, and it, we, we are not able to release it or let go of it um, or have that natural flow of emotions, that natural flow of energies that sort of come in, in waves or cycles, then that's when we start to get problems and we start to get problems um, first of all with our sleep and then with our with our mood and eventually with our physical health and so as a doctor this this interested me um, and I'll speak a little bit more about that possibly as we um, go through the presentations. One similarity that we both share is we both work with other people so I think this is why it's also a benefit that we join our viewpoints and our worlds. Um, because when you interact with a lot of other people, you tap into, as you said, more of a collective experience that people are having. So I think we are going to attempt to speak to that today together. Great. Um, I'm gonna go ahead and show a bit of a presentation now and this is really just because um, on the retreats, I like to give lectures. <laughs> so this is, uh, we thought it would be fun to do a sort of mini virtual lecture. And then we'll come back together after sort of 20, 30 minutes and, and talk about it. But I would, um, I have invited Eliza to interrupt and ask questions at any point. So, um, so she may do that. And I would ask everyone listening to get in a comfortable position and open your ears and open your hearts and enjoy. So we've introduced a little bit about why we wanted to talk about this subject. And I'm sure that it won't really be uh, surprising to anyone, the points that we've picked up. I think, you know, we all have an innate understanding of what anxiety is. Um, and we've all experienced it. It's um, a universal human state. It's been studied across different cultures, different countries. Anxiety exists. It's a fundamental part of being human for everybody. And I think we all have a slightly personal experience of how anxiety feels for us in the body. We may be someone who feels nauseated. We may flush. We may feel a tightness in the chest. We may have a sort of typical um, way of experiencing anxiety in the body. Um, and we may also have a pretty good idea of how anxiety feels for us in the mind, the topics that we tend to ruminate on, um, and whether, whether we get sort of terrifying images coming up or a mental blankness or foggy headedness. It is a bit different from person to person. But I think what um, we've noticed during um, this pandemic is that people have described experiencing anxiety in new ways. Um, and I think it's worth thinking a little bit about what anxiety is, how we can understand it and why that might be um, before we think a bit more about what we should do about it or what can be done. So one of my favorite understandings of anxiety, she comes from Heidegger. Um, so Heidegger is a philosopher um, he was writing in the 20s um, in Germany, and he was interested in existential questions. So essentially what it meant to be human. And he was interested in anxiety because he felt instinctively that anxiety revealed something about what we are, what human beings are, that is difficult to see, um, is difficult to face straight on. So I'm just going to um, ask, maybe Eliza, if you'll read this quote, this quote comes from Being in Time, which is um, Heidegger's sort of magnus opus. Um, would you mind reading? Yeah, we'll cover the full book on a future retreat. <laughs> <laughs> Anxiety and being in the world. 
Anxiety is, in this understanding, a shrinking back from what fear discloses, from what is threatening. It is founded upon fear and has the character of flight. The flight of Dawson, human being, is a flight from itself. Of course, in this entangled turning away, that from which it flees is not grasped. But in turning away from it, it is there, disclosed. Thank you, Eliza. Pleasure, Chloe. So I, I like this understanding of anxiety. He's approaches it from um, how is anxiety different from fear? And I think, you know, we, we don't often think about the difference between anxiety and fear, but the main difference probably or what Heidegger picks up is that fear is, comes when we face something that we can see in the world around us, that we can measure, we can take measure of. Um, and fear allows us um, to act sort of productively to protect ourselves. Whereas anxiety has this um, nature of something obscured. We're not quite sure what it is that is the object of our fear. Um, and because of this, it can feel frustrating. It can feel terrifying. Um, but it also has this character of flight. Um, and what, how Heidegger understood this was that actually what we're fleeing from, what we're turning from in anxiety, what the object of our fear is in anxiety is something within ourselves, something existential to being human that we are unable to face head on. And this is why he was interested in anxiety, because he thought that if we could understand what it is we're turning away from, what it is that we are wanting to flee from, then we might understand something about who we are. Now, there are different sort of opinions over the years about um, whether the root anxiety is the anxiety of death. And different thinkers have thought different things. So Melanie Klein, who is one of the sort of founding um, psychoanalytic theorists, she thought death anxiety was the primary anxiety. Although Freud himself, he, he didn't think this way because he thought that because um, we couldn't conceptualize our own death very well, that we couldn't be anxious about it. But then he hadn't read Heidegger. Um, so I think he probably wasn't right there. But sort of later, later thinkers have thought that death anxiety probably is a root cause of a lot of our anxiety. The, the thinker Ernst Becker, who wrote um, a wonderful book called um, Denial of Death, which, which was a 1973 book, he wrote about, even if we're not anxious about death itself, we're anxious about what he called our immortality projects. So we all as cultures, as civilizations, and as individuals, we build these immortality projects, which are things that make us feel that we may in some way become immortal. And these are things like um, religion or cultural movements, a feeling that we are a part of a collective, a part of a group that makes us immortal. But also I think more commonly um, in recent years in the West, more individual projects where we are trying to extend our own power and therefore feel that we gain some sort of immort immortality through having power over others. And that might be through wealth accumulation very commonly or through um, what he calls heroism. So trying to become a hero, trying to become um, very good at something so that in that way we, we create some sort of an immortality for ourselves. So he felt that um, the, the fear of death um, can also be felt very strongly in the fear that we have when our immortality projects are threatened. Um, and I think that taking all this together does help us to understand a little bit about why anxiety has become such a epidemic um, in this current COVID pandemic, because it's not just the direct fear of death that is affecting people. You know, many of us probably have a sense that we aren't particularly vulnerable or we're not worried about this virus personally, but still are experiencing anxiety. Um, but it's also that our immortality projects have come under threat. So our big economic projects, our personal wealth, 
our personal sense of who we are in the world and um, the sort of feelings that we get of security from that have all at once come under threat together globally. Um, and I think this in part has been why there's been such an emergence of anxiety for, for almost everybody. Um, move on. So anxiety isn't just a sort of sort of philosophical thing, abstract thing, but it is m much more experienced as an embodied state. So anxiety is in the body, we experience it through the body. Um, and in many ways, the body is one of the best ways to contact our feeling of anxiety um, and learn how to explore that. So I would encourage you to think, um, to, to, to become aware of yourself and become aware of your, how your anxiety feels to you, not just in your head and what your worries are, but also in your body. Um, and through this, you can become aware of what sort of activities you need to do to bring the balance back into your nervous systems if you start to sense that things are becoming unbalanced and to use your body as your teacher. Um, so how do we understand anxiety in the body? I'm going to talk um, a little bit now from um, the Western medical model. Um, and uh, this slide is showing you uh, the autonomic nervous system. So this was a topic that we spoke about last year on the retreat, and I'm only going to give you the sort of bare outline of um, the different structures in the body that we understand as being involved in anxiety. And I'm going to say one thing which is that one of the reasons that when we get together to practice yoga during this time or come to meditation class, one of the reasons it feels so good in the body, which Chloe will explain in detail, is it brings you into your parasympathetic nervous system or your rest and digest nervous system. And it's really important that you go into this nervous system frequently in order to maintain a balance in your state. So go ahead, Chloe. So in this diagram, you can see the autonomic nervous system being represented. Um, on the left hand side of the diagram um, in purple and yellow is the parasympathetic nervous system. Um, and on the right is the sympathetic nervous system shown in green and orange. And this nervous system um, is made up of, of neurons, and those neurons come from the central nervous system, so from the brain and the spinal cord, and they move out into all parts of the body. So the organs that you can see represented here, um, but also the muscles and the skin. And the autonomic nervous system is called the autonomic nervous system, which means, uh, because it means self-ruling. So autonomic means self-ruling, self-governed. Um, and this is because um, there was a sense by the people that named it that there was something um, that we didn't have conscious control of um, in this nervous system, something slightly mysterious, something that um, governs itself. Um, I don't think this is uh, completely true. We do have some control over the autonomic nervous system, um, but we can talk about that later on. So as you can see here, um, the division on the right, the sympathetic nervous system or the fight and flight nervous system is really the nervous system we would associate with anxiety-like symptoms. So dilated pupils, a dry mouth, an increased heart rate, um, we have different um, effects. So this says relax the airways, but really what that means is that we're preparing the lungs to take um, more breath in. Uh, and this, um, we have these um, effects on the gut, uh, which basically mean that our digestion gets slowed down. Um, and the effect here um, on the, this, uh, this little diagram showing the kidney with the um, adrenal gland above it. And the adrenal gland um, is a very important part of our anxiety response. Um, and the sympathetic nervous system 
directly stimulates the adrenal gland and releases stress hormones like epinephrine, which is also known as adrenaline. Um, so this is um, how anxiety first spreads through the body, through the sympathetic nervous system. And the anatomy of this nervous system is if you can look to where the, um, the little green lines are going in, they're coming out of the spinal cord and they're coming out um, between the little bones of the spine, between the vertebra of the spine, all the way from the thoracic, the, the top of the thoracic spine um, to sort of midway through the lumbar spine. So this is um, most of your back um, where, this, where, the, um, where the spine runs the nerves of the sympathetic nervous system are coming out between each of the vertebra in this way. The parasympathetic nervous system, as you can see, has a different distribution. Um, it mostly comes out of the brainstem. So if you look at the purple lines, um, and there is one nerve, which is the third nerve down, um, which comes from the brainstem, but then supplies a lot of these important organs like the heart, the lungs, um, the stomach, and the liver and that is the vagus nerve um, so that's a very important nerve um, and it's one in which um, yoga is very important in in working with can so, i ask a question chloe yes just very basic so when we go to sleep at night do we naturally go into our parasympathetic nervous system Yes. So when we say that we go into one or the other, it's a slight oversimplification in the sense that both of these nervous systems have activity through them all of the time, um, but one will predominate over the other. Mm -hmm. um, so you can have a sort of a mixed picture and it tends to, to change over time. But yes, when we're asleep, we tend to have um, higher parasympathetic activity. And when we're awake, we have higher sympathetic activity. And it varies over the course of the day as well. Good. So this, I just want to give points of relating to it. So mm -hmm. for example, if we are very basic, we're walking down the street and a dog not on a leash comes running at us and barking and the fear is invoked that we might be bitten, then we're gonna be in our sympathetic nervous system, we're gonna get a dry mouth, maybe our hands get clammy. And how long does it take to recover, let's say, from that experience in the body, or how long can that adrenaline last? So in terms of the nervous activity itself, um, so the ner nerves transmit information basically through electricity. So it's very fast and very instantaneous. Mm -hmm. You can recover from that almost immediately in the sense that um, those signals are very, are very instantaneous. Um, so that doesn't necessarily have to last any length of time, but you picked up on something called adrenaline, <laughs> which um, is what prolongs the, the, nerve, the sort of anxious response. Um, so maybe I'll talk a little bit about that now, because I was going to talk about the adrenal hormones, which are the other part of the stress response in the body. Perfect. So the nervous system we can think of as the sort of electric response and the hormones is the chemical response. Um, and hormones last longer than electrical signals. So they're a way of prolonging that response. The main hormones involved in anxiety or the stress response um, are produced by the adrenal glands. Kidneys are sort of sitting towards the back of the body, just up tucked in just under the lower ribs in the back of the body there. And on top of them are those little sort of insignificant looking wedges of tissue called the um, adrenal glands. And these make a number of hormones. But the important ones, um, as Eliza picked up, um, and we've all heard of, I'm sure, are adrenaline, which the Americans call epinephrine, um, and noradrenaline or norepinephrine. These hormones, when they are released, um, they then go into the bloodstream 
and they circulate around the body and they affect all of the tissues that they come into contact with in the body. And they all have a different length of time in which they last in the blood. Um, so adrenaline tends to be metabolized quite quickly. Um, once you have a shot of adrenaline, its half-life is a couple of minutes. Noradrenaline lasts a little bit longer. But then we have this hormone cortisol, um, which is more of a chronic stress hormone. So what happens um, when noradrenaline reaches the brain, it then can tell the um, hypothalamus to start signaling to the pituitary gland to tell the adrenal glands to produce cortisol. So you get this extra loop of production of cortisol, which is a longer acting stress hormone and lasts for longer in the body. Um, and this can prolong the stress response even further. But having said that, even with cortisol, it doesn't last that long in the body um, and its effects tend to wear off fairly quickly. And as you can see, actually, on the left hand side, um, this is a normal picture of cortisol release over the course of a day, over the course of 24 hours. So although you can see that there are fluctuations, there's this general line where early in the morning we get this peak in cortisol. Um, and then the cortisol tends to drop over the course of the day um, and it gets to its lowest um, around the time that we're trying to get to sleep in the evening. And this, um, what we call a diurnal variation in cortisol, so meaning happening over the course of a day, um, is one important mechanism by which we get sleepy and tired and we're able to switch off at night. So you can see that um, cortisol being high gives us the energy in the morning to wake up and allows us to feel alert and have that sort of um, sense of being able to get up and do things in the day, in the morning. But we need that to drop off by the evening time so that we can go to sleep. And one of the problems that happens um, if we are constantly stimulating the adrenal glands to produce cortisol is that we lose this diurnal variation in cortisol that we end up having, initially we'll end up having raised levels of cortisol 24 hours a day, um, which obviously prevents us from sleeping um, or getting off to sleep. And then what happens over time is that the body starts to notice, oh, we've got too much cortisol. We need to stop responding to this cortisol because it's going to do us harm. And then you become resistant to cortisol. Um, and that also causes problems because if you're resistant to cortisol, uh, you get a sort of blunted cortisol response. Um, and what that ends up meaning is that you feel, you tend to feel very exhausted all of the time. Um, and particularly we see this in depression and particularly in women for some reason, but we see this very um, blunted cortisol response where their body has just given up responding to, to cortisol, it's had too much of it. Um, and they don't get, um, you don't get this um, sort of feeling of well-being and energy in the morning with the cortisol peak. You actually wake up and you can feel quite exhausted and demotivated. So um, cortisol is an important hormone and we actually measure um, psychological health by how um, responsive our cortisol is to stress. So if we, um, if you're given an acute stressor, or, or more typically in medicine, we'll give a hormone that um, asks the adrenal glands to produce the cortisol. If you have a good response, a high response of cortisol to the stress, which peaks and then dips, then that's considered to be healthy. You've got the normal elasticity in the body. But if you have a sort of um, depleted cortisol response or a blunted cortisol response, then that's a sign that you've, your body's been through chronic stress. Um, and uh, that can be the cause of, of many problems, um, including with the immune system and, and with the cardiovascular system, um, as well as causing depression, mental fatigue, and all of these symptoms. Chloe? So, yes. Would you say because of COVID-19 that people could be experiencing um, depleted adrenal glands? Yeah, so the time frame of this, I think, is important to be aware of. So 
it depends to some degree what state you were in before the pandemic started. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if, you're, if your adrenal response, your cortisol response was and very, it was normal prior to the stress of the pandemic, you're probably, you probably haven't had enough time yet to develop, you know, this chronic blunted cortisol response. This takes many months um, to, to build up. Okay. But having said that, um, you can be experiencing higher levels of this acute stress. And it's just to be aware that if you have continued um, activation of your stress um, systems in the body without giving adequate time for rest and relaxation and the parasympathetic um, nervous system to, to help restore the structures of the body, then this process does become chronic over time. Um, and there, you know, there are many people who, who are experiencing chronic stress um, and it may be the pandemic may not have helped um, or might have just um, increased the amount of stress that you've been experiencing to the point where you then tip over into this depletion. But what I'll say is that when, you, when you're feeling um, anxious, generally this isn't this adrenal depletion state, but actually the adrenal depletion state feels more like depression um, or exhaustion, chronic fatigue, this sort of um, feeling. I don't know if that's so this could yes and then the i guess flip side of that could be that if you are a person who due to work or family or a life transition that has happened etc you could use this time of isolation in order to work on repairing and healing some of this and in that way it could be quite a gift to recognize that you want to not live in this state all of the time Absolutely. Yes. And I think also um, one thing to say is that adrenaline, so having these constant shots of adrenaline into the system throughout the day can feel very good. Um, It almost feels addictive. And the problem is, is that um, if you then are sort of beginning to deplete your your cortisol, your baseline um, cortisol, then you rely on the adrenaline to feel alert, to feel awake, to feel good about yourself. And when the adrenaline isn't there, then you feel really exhausted and terrible, which then drives this cycle of, of seeking out stress mm. um, and actually thriving on the stress. And I think this that some people have experienced in the pandemic those normal distractions, those normal ways of just being really active in the world, of rushing around, of um, you know taking on everyone's stress, have been taken away from them, and that then they just realise that without all of the adrenaline, they feel really depleted and exhausted. Um, but as Eliza said, um, that's no bad thing because actually, you need to if you're in that state sooner rather than later, it's a good idea to take that time to to restore your systems so that you can avoid some of the long-term health problems. It could be a wake-up call. Yes. Yeah. Thank you. So I think that's enough about the adrenal hormones. Let's talk a bit about sleep because I don't want people to sort of be overwhelmed in the sense of thinking, oh, am I, am I too anxious? Is this going to, you know, is this going to cause me problems? where am I at with all of these complicated feedback loops of hormones and all of this. Um, but actually, I think the most simple way in is to just notice your sleep. So I would say that if you um, are able to sleep well and deeply every night and feel refreshed in the morning, then the anxiety that you may be feeling during the course of the day is probably not chronic and probably is not being stored in the body. Um, And that's okay. It's good to just experience that anxiety and let it go. Um, And as long as you're sleeping, then I wouldn't worry too much um, about it. Sleep tends to be one of the early warning signs that anxiety is beginning to be stored in the body. And this, this is because um, sort of anxiety and sleep have this uh, sort of tied in this um, pernicious uh, sort of harmful cycle where um, when you're anxious and you're 
body is um, got high levels of sympathetic activity, this will prevent you from going to sleep. And that's, that's a sort of a normal response because the body needs a way, a way to keep you awake in case something threatening is going to happen. So, so say you were um, sort of camping out and you knew there were lions around, then you don't want to go into a deep sleep because you may need to get up and run away from the lion. Um, so this is, you know, this is a way, um, initially a way to keep us alert at night if there are threats about. Um, but I can tell you that, that you're not going to change COVID-19 by staying awake at night. COVID-19 does not need a night watchman. Um, so, um, so it's not always functional for us. And then in addition, when we don't sleep very well, um, this can end up feeding back into the system and actually increasing our anxiety symptoms the next day. Um, and this is partly because we just feel tired. So we we ruminate more. We're less good at make you know taking the steps that we actually know we should be taking to do things that are healthy for us um and also through um dysregulated cortisol so sleep also helps to re-regulate um, all of the hormonal systems so these things start to to build on each other so if you're not sleeping particularly well um, this is probably the first sign that it would be a good idea to learn how to explore your anxiety um, during the daytime hours um, and particularly to learn to rest the body deeply and fully um, and I would suggest that the best way to do this is to think about the day in terms of um, the morning being more active um, and try and move the body in the morning and then in the evening, um, think more about resting and relaxing the body in preparation for sleep. And I would say that if you are still not sleeping despite doing that, start resting and relaxing an hour earlier. <laughs> and then if you're still not sleeping, an hour earlier than that. Because it may be, you know, it, it depends on, on your, your physiological state, but it may be that you need to spend the whole day resting and relaxing to bring the um, anxiety levels down to, to a sort of healthy and productive um, way of being. Um, it may just be you need to do an hour before bed. It may be that you need to spend four hours in the evening engaged in sort of active relaxation. So it may be, it, I, I would recommend starting to feel that out for yourself, particularly if you find that you're not sleeping well. And I would add for sustained results, just know you have to stick with it. It's not going to be, in one, two, or three days that you completely repair your entire sleep cycle if it's disrupted. So be compassionate and gentle with yourself that you're gonna go through a process of a few weeks, if not six weeks, of really changing. You know, and this can also include um, the foods that you eat. Uh, maybe you do need to physically move the body if you're completely sedentary. It may be as basic as that. Maybe you need to get more vitamin D if possible. More sunlight can also help to repair so that you sleep better. So there are, there are many, 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 many supports along the way to sleep. But look at it as a journey that you're going to go on to change your daily habits in order to come to a sustained result so that you sleep better. It's not going to be in 24 or 48 hours. So just take your time. Yes. So I'm going to move on so just an, this is um i think also helpful uh for us to think about anxiety this is more from a cognitive um, way of thinking about it because i think one of the defenses that um, anxious people sometimes use to defend their anxiety is that it's helpful that they need to worry about things that there are things that you know they need to do um, and that's fine it is true that we we do need some anxiety in order to plan, to prepare, to um, look after the things we need to look after in the world. But I think these are quite helpful rules of thumb that actually your thoughts might not be being productive anymore. Um, so you can read these yourself. Um, but um, the sense that the thoughts have become stale, old, familiar, um, that you get so lost in them that the world tends to disappear outside um, that you're spending a lot of time comparing or evaluating, 
you're stuck in the past or the future, that you're heavy, that your thoughts have this sense of this heavy, almost um, black and white feeling of right or wrong, um, or that your thoughts are busy, racing, repetitive or confusing. And I would encourage you that if you relate to any of these things, then this may also be a sign that um, your anxiety may not be um, as productive or helpful for you. And it may be worth thinking about how you can address that. And for those that think they need their anxiety to be productive, I would encourage you to just change the view and perhaps think of it like you can carve out these interior spaces that are full of these uh, anxiety producing thoughts and you can actually fill them with wisdom, which will be much more beneficial in the long run for your entire being. Yeah, I mean, I think that um, all of the studies show that thoughts that are, the, the plans and thoughts and ideas that come under a state of anxiety have a very um, particular quality to them. And they tend to be um, very reactive um, and short termist. So there are some situations in life when we need to make reactive short-termist decisions. If you're faced with a problem that you need to solve instantaneously, um, then, then that's a good way to use anxiety. But if you're making majority of your thoughts um, under those conditions, under those physiological conditions, you're not going to be making the best long-term decisions. So seeing as most of you are interested in yoga, I assume... I thought that we should talk about working with the body to liberate the mind. Now, I think um, I wanted to be a bit cautious about this because if we think back to Heidegger, anxiety is a turning away, a flight. And if we're trying to reduce anxiety, it is actually a paradoxical problem that we can't turn away from it and we can't flee from it because this actually increases our anxiety. Um, so part of the answer to um, dysfunctional anxiety or disordered anxiety is to turn inwards, to turn towards ourselves, to turn towards our being um, and um, actually not to flee, but to be still. Okay. So to be aware of that. But then also we can think about the body and actually how anxiety um, is in, in our understanding of um, our biology, how it is maintained and how it becomes chronic and how we can shift um, in our body from the sympathetic nervous system to the parasympathetic nervous system. And fortunately, yoga has thought about all of these problems um, and is a great um, technology to help us um, to learn how to do this, to learn to work with our own body in this way. So I sort of made, this is just um, from for off of my own head, and it's really not, um, um, it doesn't cover everything. But these are the sorts of things we can do for anxiety. So poses that help with restlessness. So I think if you're feeling this sort of restless energy, this flight-like energy that you need to be constantly moving, running away from something um, that can be quite unpleasant, you're feeling jittery on edge, then um, standing poses and poses with movement are great for this. If you do 15 handstands, I promise you'll happily lie flat on your back. <laughs> <laughs> So then the poses that stimulate and nourish um, the autonomic nervous system and adrenals directly. So all of these parts of the body, they're, they're real biological parts of the body. They're structures that need to have blood flow to them to stay healthy. They need to have oxygen to them to stay healthy. Um, and we can do um, a lot of direct work on these parts of the body. So for the sympathetic nervous system, we remember how it came out between all of the vertebrae in the spine. So spinal twists um, are great for this. Back bends as well. Back bends are also great for the adrenal glands because um, you're sort of squeezing the adrenals in a back bend. And then when you um, squeeze it, you can um, flush through all of the hormones that um, are just sitting there latent. And then when you increase, when you come up from the back bend, then the blood will flow back into the, that area 
Um, and this is actually very healthy for the body to have this elasticity in it um, and to keep everything um, to keep everything flowing um, through. Because um, as we saw before, actually having peaks of cortisol and then times in which there's less cortisol in the body, that helps us retain our sensitivity to the cortisol and prevents us from having these problems with um, resistance to cortisol, which um, are the sort of chronic stress problems. To stimulate the parasympathetic nervous system or to nourish the parasympathetic nervous system, this we're thinking mostly about the vagus nerve. Um, the vagus nerve runs um, from the brainstem, um, which is uh, sort of at the base of the skull, um, all the way down um, through the neck and through the chest. So for this, um, uh, all the poses with chest expansion are useful, which is basically all yoga poses. Um, and um, inversions are also very useful because inversions um, are sort of indirectly putting pressure on the uh, parasympathetic nervous system through um, the way that our blood pressure is changing and the vagus nerve is very involved in all of these um, feedback loops. So this um, sort of exercises the, the vagus nerve um, very effectively. There are more as well. These are just examples. Um, so, and then poses that quiet in the mind and this can be helpful, particularly if you've identified that you are ruminating. Um, so poses that tend to have a quietening effect on the mind are such things like forward bends, shoulder stand in particular. Um, everyone will have their own experience, I'm sure, of poses which they find quietening for their mind. Poses that deepen and slow our breathing. So we didn't talk that much about how the breath is related to the autonomic nervous system, but um, the breath is one of the main ways in which we can shift from um, one nervous system to the other. Um, and there are direct um, feedback loops from the breath to the heart rate um, through the parasympathetic and sympathetic nervous systems. Um, and the particular poses that shift us from sympathetic to parasympathetic, so shift us out of the anxious state into a more restful state, um, tend to be ones where we deepen and slow our breathing and particularly ones where we focus on the out breath. Um, so um, there's particular pranayama that are, are recommended for this and um, are useful to do in the evening if you can't sleep particularly. And then poses for letting go. Um, so this is um, uh, Shavasana, um, but also um, we can learn to let go in, in any of the poses. So I would say that um, I hope this is sort of a helpful-ish guide um, because it is also useful to think about the sequence of your practice. So it may be that you want to um, get a couple of these different benefits um, and it often um, works well to, to move from the more active poses to, through to the um, more relaxed poses. Um, so it's useful to think about the sequence of your practice um, and when you're doing it in the day as well as we spoke about. And to loop back to actually kind of where we began, um, the quality of the breath reflects the quality of the mind. So if that's a way for you to tune in with how you're feeling throughout the day by just observing the breath, um, first I would just say take notice, do you breathe through your mouth or do you breathe through your nose? And if you're a person that primarily breathes through your mouth, just experiment and add breathing through the nose and see how that changes your state of being. And in particular, if you're experiencing little bouts of stress throughout the day, just pause and take three deep breaths into your belly, filling it like a balloon and then releasing it. So the breath is really a great bridge between what's happening with the body and the mind and you'll begin to work with it naturally in the poses but being aware of it from now on can be incredibly helpful and shavasana which translates as corpse pose so this is on one level a position we can practice pranayama from it's a position that we can release our spine and our muscles and we can release the effort of the active asana practice by lying in shavasana but it's also the practice of dying so if we are facing this um, fear uncertainty um, or insecurity about what our own death will be like 
or during this time, how we will deal with the death of loved ones or friends or colleagues, then I really encourage you to do Shavasana as this practice of dying. I mean, knowing that, you know, you will, you will sit up afterwards, but allowing the minds to have thoughts of, if these are my last breaths, how do I feel about that? And if these are my last moments, can I really release in joy, in peace, and in letting go? Because the last breath that we all take will be an exhalation. It will be a final out breath and a final letting go. And Shavasana, I think, is one of the most often overlooked uh, gems of a yoga practice. Because imagine if you get 20 years or 50 years to practice dying well. That's beneficial for you. That's beneficial for everyone around you. And you can really actually then make your last act or your last moment here on earth something that is kind to others and something that can also teach others. Mm -hmm. So think about Shavasana when you're doing it. Yeah, and I suppose uh, just to add to that, the science really supports um, facing death head on. And I, I say that, and there's some really interesting work done by um, social psychologists who are interested in the, fear of the field of terror management. Um, and what they have done is um, uh, they've replicated these studies over and over again in different contexts. But if they show people subliminal messages about death, so these are messages that the person is not aware that they're being reminded of death, they, the sort of things where they just flash up words um you know on a computer screen but so quickly that they can't see it these sorts of subliminal messages about death have all sorts of psychological implications and will really affect the way that that subject in the study is behaving it tends to make people act in a way which is um actually a lot crueler to others particularly this has been seen um as well as having lots of other impacts on anxiety levels but interestingly, or interestingly for these social psychologists, that actually directly talking to people about death does not have these effects, or directly asking people to face their death does not have these effects. So it's actually um, supported in the science that the subliminal messages about, about your mortality are what is um, a source of anxiety, and facing um, your mortality head on, like you would do in Shavasana, does not, it actually decreases anxiety. Um, so I think that is also useful to know in case you're someone who is, is fearful of death or facing um, the thought of your death or that of other people that you love. I just remembered, Chloe, we have an entire podcast about this. So actually, if this is something that really you want to dive into, we, we talk about it for, I think, a full hour. It's called Living with Death. And... I would absolutely go and listen to it if, if the topic interests you, but also if death is something that is really unknown or anxious for you because it is not integrated into Western culture to tell us from the time that we're children that it's a very natural part of life. You will be born and you will die. We're often told we will be born, we will be wonderful, we will succeed, we will do all of these things, there will be all of this meaning that we create. While all of that can be true, um, we usually aren't so informed about how natural the end of life is, just as the beginning is. Thanks, Eliza. I think really that is all I was going to say. Here is some um, references that I've um, spoken about um, and some further reading. Okay. Well, first, thank you so much, Chloe. You're welcome. And we can wrap this up. There's still a bit of space to talk. Um, if you could give someone, and if it's too much on the spot, I'm sorry, but if you could give someone three tips for during COVID-19, the rest of it, um, to implement into their life, what would it be? And I know it depends on what the person is suffering with, so this will be general, but I am asking in a general way. Yes. Um, so I suppose uh, I have been giving uh, 
my patients various tips so I can talk about some of the most common ones that I've been given but that I would, would say great, that actually so I would say probably the three things um, that I would recommend is so firstly to acknowledge your thoughts and feelings I think that a lot of people have struggled with um, the way that they're feeling, feeling like they don't deserve to feel that way, that they feel guilty about the way that they're feeling. Um, but just to allow that and to realize that actually this is a very difficult time um, for some of the reasons that we've spoken about. Um, and um, that the healthiest thing that you can do is to, to acknowledge um, how that is presenting or showing up for you. Um, so that would be the first one is to acknowledge the thoughts and feelings. I think the second one would be to, to come back to um, what you can control, which um, is to some degree the body. So to come back to the body um, and also to some degree your immediate environment. So if you're feeling anxious, depressed, and really think about how you can nourish and nurture your body and the home around you, um, keeping things clean, shaking things up. Um, and also, if you happen to live with people, then, then your relationships as well with those people. So these, these very simple things that are surrounding us that we, that nonetheless are incredibly important, sometimes we neglect, but we have an opportunity now to really um, to, to focus on these things and, and nourish them and nurture them. And I even say dive in. If you want to give yourself a foot bath every day, if you want to make elaborate breakfasts for yourself, like think of the moments when you've been maybe more stressed in a different way and you don't have this time for self-care. So rather than sort of exhausting yourself with worry right now, do these wonderful things as offerings for yourself if you have the time right now. And then I suppose the, the other thing is about how, how best to engage in the world. And again, this will be a bit individual for everybody, but I would encourage um, you to take this as a place, as a space for reflection, as a break in the status quo, and actually think when life goes back um, after the pandemic, what things do I want to lose from my life, from the way I've structured um, my habits, from even from um, society? You know, you don't have to go out and change anything massively, but use it as a time to think what is actually was unnecessary before? What was making us sick? What can be different? Um, and I think that that, that is um, some, it's a great opportunity to do that also if you're in the position where you feel able to do that. But I would say if you feel really overwhelmed and stressed, focus on the first two things first. <laughs> yes, you don't have to do anything. Also giving yourself permission, if that is your state, that you can experience feelings of purposelessness, you know, or feelings of hopelessness, and it's perfectly acceptable. It doesn't need to be validated in any way. Just allow yourself to feel it and accept it. Great. Eliza, I, I asked you if you would um, think of a poem that yes. we could share with everybody, because partly because um, we, we really wanted to read poetry on the retreat that we were going to have this year. Um, and partly because I think probably for both of us, poetry has been a, also a great solace um, during this time. So I know you've chosen a poem. Would you like to? I will happily read it, Chloe. And thank you so much for asking. And I plan on the poetry integration carrying over into 2021. Um, so I'm going to read a very classical, wonderful, simple, yet profound poem by Mary Oliver. Uh, it's called Sunrise. Sunrise. You can die for it, an idea, or the world. People have done so brilliantly, letting their small bodies be bound to the stake, creating an unforgettable fury of light. But this morning, climbing the familiar hills in the familiar fabric of dawn, I thought of China and India and Europe 
and I thought how the sun blazes for everyone just so joyfully as it rises under the lashes of my own eyes. And I thought, I am so many. What is my name? What is the name of the deep breath I would take over and over for all of us? Call it whatever you want. It is happiness. It is another one of the ways to enter fire. Wonderful. Thanks, Eliza. Pleasure. So thank you everyone for uh, tuning in and opening up this video recording. And I really hope it's of benefit to you and that you've been able to maybe open your mind and your heart to some new ideas and to learn more about yourself so that you can benefit from this time that we're all going through together right now. And I can't wait to actually see you in person. Uh, that will be a very lovely and cherished moment when it arrives. And I want to thank you, Chloe, for sharing your expertise with us and for the very helpful diagram so that we can see what's going on inside of us as well. So thank you. Yeah, thank you, Eliza. Goodbye. Bye. Thank you.